0: Right. Good morning, everyone. Um, Welcome to the Institute for Government's first Fringe event. We've got a a packed programme, but you are privileged to be here at the start of it. So thank you all all very much for getting up so early this morning to be here to talk about the Constitution. I'm very impressed. Um, My name's Hannah White. I'm director of the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted that uh, we've been able to convene this panel here today to discuss the question whether there is a conservative case for constitutional reform. And I'd like first to thank the FDA for uh, sponsoring this event today. So why is this an important subject to be discussing? We've all seen a period of considerable turbulence. I think it's fair to say in our constitution, whether you're on the side of thinking, um, that the evidence is that the constitution has, has, been tested and held up, or whether you think there are more uh, serious concerns. We've seen battles between Parliament, the courts, and the government over Brexit. We've seen uh, the COVID pandemic, which, <clears throat> during which the government had to uh, impose severe uh, restrictions on civil liberties. Uh, and some people felt that that was uh, um, to a greater extent than was necessary, and there's live debate about that. Um, and we've seen clashes between different parts of our union, the gov- governments in different parts of our union over this over this period and the approach that's been taken. So because of all these things, we at the Institute for Government and the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge decided that we needed to launch a review of the UK constitution. And I'm delighted to say we published that uh, a couple of weeks ago, and its author, Jess Sargent, is here today Uh, and can speak to the findings of that review. Um, But what we really wanted to do today is to convene a discussion to discuss this big overarching question. What is the conservative case for constitutional reform? Indeed, is there one? Um, And uh, just uh, uh, with reference to that review, you should find cards on your table which tell you the very headline points from that. And please uh, do go to our website and download it if you're interested. so, to introduce our excellent uh, panel for today, as I said, we have um, on my left, Jeff Sargent, who's an Associate Director of the IFG and author of our review. We have Henry Hill, who is Deputy Editor of Conservative Home. We have John Penrose, MP, who has been uh, the MP for Western Super since 2005, a minister in the Cabinet Office and the uh, Northern Ireland Office, and the government, uh, well, the Prime Minister's uh, anti-corruption Czar, I'll call you, <laughs> for five years um, uh, until 2022, I believe. Yes. Um, and uh, last but not least, we have Amy Levisage, who is the Deputy uh, Assistant, rather, uh, Secretary General of the FDA and led their campaign uh, within Parliament for uh, a, a more robust system for addressing bullying and harassment there. So I think you'll all agree an excellent panel. Uh, we'll kick off. Uh, with some questions from me and some discussion amongst the panel and then we'll make sure to leave plenty of time for questions from the floor. So do be thinking up what you would like to ask this panel, now you have the chance. Um, so I'm going to kick off uh, with you, John, if that's okay, and, ask you, and I'm going to ask each of the panelists to answer the sort of question on the tin so they can tell us what is most top of mind in terms of this question, is there a, constitu- a conservative case for constitutional reform?
1: Um, thank you, Hannah, and, uh, and thank you very much to the IFG for organising this. I've got to say, you get maximum bravery points for kicking off with constitutional reform at eight thirty a.m. on a Monday morning. I mean, I, I know there are, I know there, are bur- there are burgers at the back to get everybody sort of going, but it, it, you, you get points of bravery anyway. Um, I, I think the short answer to your to the question on the tin um, is yes, there is certainly a conservative case for constitutional reform, um, but and it's, a, it's two quite important buts. One is that um, actually constitutional reform needs to be done on a cross-party basis. So we should be willing participants at the table, but we shouldn't be the only people at the table. Um, If you start herring off and imposing things um, in constitutional reform, that is, I think, a very dangerous place for any part of our um, body politic to be. Um, So so yes, but we need to uh, do this as a consensus-building operation. The other point I'd also make is that um, I think that any attempt to do constitutional reform probably has to be um, incremental small steps rather than big sweeping things and that's partly because that's the way we've always done it um, and it seems to have worked historically um but also because you know there ain't no votes in constitutional reform um and and therefore you know, uh, making it putting it on the front page of your manifesto is a short route to opposition um so we will need to do things yes um and, and I hope we go into some of the detail and your, um, the, the IFS report um, made some interesting proposals, too. But I think that it's got to be small steps and it's got to be incremental when, they, when the opportunity arises. Um, trying to create a mass movement of people willing to man the barricades for constitutional reform is, in Britain at least, um, an uphill task.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Um, Henry.
2: So I, th- I think that it's sometimes conservatives can to be tricked by this question. Because you're know, constitutional reform, you're like ah, it's liberal democratic nonsense, <laughs> um, and it often is. But one of the one of the virtues of the of the of our uncodified constitution is that actually incremental organic change can and should happen all yeah. of the time. Right, it's a continually evolving process. You don't have these big barriers to set piece confrontations over the constitution. And so, in a way, actually constitutional reform is is just government to to an extent. And I think that the difference maybe in attitude is that conservatives, at least in my experience, they'll they'll deal with an individual issue, but they won't necessarily conceive of it as part of a big kind of constitutional reform. They'll be tweaking a specific mechanism for a specific purpose, whereas uh, some uh, other approaches is to set up kind of a headline thing where you start with, we're going to do the constitutional reform, and then you form a group, and then you're like, what constitutional reform are we doing? I don't think that's the way the conservatives tend to reason. Now, I can think of as sort of the second and third tier, all kinds of things that the Conservatives could do, uh, uh, which I think would be useful, which would, would probably qualify as constitutional reforms. On another way, if you, if you analyse it, ultimately because our, our constitution allows for Parliament to do basically whatever it likes at the very top level, you don't need to reform it because Parliament can already do every every single, uh, can, can apply every remedy. I think mm-hmm. often, sometimes we, we fall into the trap of trying to treat as institutional problems or trying to design our way out of problems, which in, in this country are effectively will to govern problems, right? Like, we, we, I, we attribute to, to inadequate processes when it's actually just, Parliament could do it if it wanted to, it just doesn't want to. And there's ultimately a limit to the extent to which you can institutional process your way out of that fundamental problem. But you know, if I were picking just from the list, I think Parliament could do more to strengthen its oversight of the devolved assemblies. I think the way we've done devolution uh, most fe- actually federal countries would think it absolutely remarkable the lack of interest Westminster takes in overseeing the dispersal of the funds that it sends to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland for example. I think that Parliament could usefully, uh, inc- contrary to the findings of this report, I think Parliament could usefully pass a law saying there is no such thing as constitutional statutes. Um, <laughs> they've been invented by the courts and that they, uh, they do not actually exist. Uh, and I, I could provide you with a laundry list of ideas, most of which you probably wouldn't like. But the short answer is yes, there is. I can there is a conservative case for constitutional reform because it is how our constitution operates.
0: Can I just before I go to Amy and Jess oh, come back to you both in, and just obviously put the sort of counter argument, which is that if you approach constitutional change in uh, in in, this, in the sort of incrementalist way, which you as you both completely accurately describe, is how we tend to do it in this country and when we set ourselves up to do major things, I mean, not in all circumstances, but in some uh, circumstances, um, most notably, obviously, House of Lords reform, that's when we come a, come a proper. Um, is the risk with incremental change that you end up responding to specific circumstances, as you say, Henry, and then, but you don't see the big picture, and you end up tweaking things in ways which end up being counterproductive? I might cite the FT, uh, the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, or evil uh, provisions in Parliament. I'll come back to you and
2: uh, well, I mean, if we want to get into Evil, I actually supported Evil. Um, it, was, it was passed too late, but it was very useful. I think I would actually view the FTPA as an example of the opposite. I think the FTPA is an example of taking some kind of abstract principle and then applying it on mass and everything catching fire, right? And yeah. you know, happily, we repealed it. But the, the thing about incremental changes, if, if an incremental change doesn't work, you can then make more incremental changes and you can it can be a continual and ongoing process where if you have a big set-piece battle, you've got two problems, I think. One is just the pretense of knowledge, right? You, you, you are, the bigger the change you're making, the more things you cannot notice or not consider that can go wrong. And second is, once people have polarized around it, or it's become a big part of their legacy, people will be tempted to kind of die on the hill of that, or, or one way or the other. Whereas if they haven't had a chance to do that, to, to, to sort of embed it as, like so devolution, for example, you know, there's lots of people now whose careers is kind of defined by what position they took on devolution. Whereas if it's a smaller technical change, it's much easier for people to change their minds and I think that allows for a dialogue between the sides in a way that a big like a referendum absolutely doesn't.
0: Yeah I mean I, I agree with you on the FTPA I think it ended up you know done for one purpose and ended up causing massive yeah. problems. Um, yeah.
1: I, I would agree with what Henry was saying I, I, I think that the both the fixed term parliament act um, and the English votes for English Lords evil um, are good examples of how the system um, has either worked or has not yet failed. So so fixed and Parliament Act um, w- w- was passed for, for one reason and had to be repealed because, as you said, everything caught fire elsewhere in the Constitution. Um, but we could do that. And so the system was able to cope. Um, on the English votes for English laws, I think that's still a problem. I think there is a genuine issue there with a lopsided Constitution and in the way we've done our devolution. Um, and I think that we will have to come back to that. Um, and if we aren't going to stick with English votes for English laws, then, you know, some sort of federal approach or something beckons because that is still a fundamental unfairness which is nestled in the heart. But we can fix it. Um, and Henry's absolutely right. The, the, the issue is, is political will, not process.
0: And trial and error. Yeah. Um, Amy, can I come to you? So, I mean, same opening question to you about the Constitution. And I guess from your point of view, it's really interesting to hear from the civil service point of view how, how this last period has felt and whether there's a sense of a need for reform.
3: Um, thank you, Hannah, and um, it's great to, to be able to partner with the, with the IFG again on um, at fringe events um, here. And I have to say, um, the, the report that the IFG and the, the Bennett Institute have written is really, really thought-provoking, and I think it's an, it's an incredibly detailed um, uh, report, and it's really important, um, because I think, as you rightly say, sometimes these issues, we are doing them incrementally, and no one actually does take a, a step back and look strategically at the whole piece and look at where we can, uh, where we've got gaps, um, and and the really important high-level things that we need to do. So I think there's some really thought-provoking um, uh, uh, things in there. Now, obviously, the the civil service's job is to serve the government of the day, and if the government um, uh, of the day wants to do any of these uh, things, the civil service will be, will be implementing uh, implementing those i mean in terms of the, probably the more interesting question that you've asked is how does the civil service feel over this last um this last few years and i think we've had an extraordinary time um with attacks on the impartiality of the civil service um, and that's come from from all parties and all um politicians of all different color in different parts of um of the united kingdom have um turned on the civil service and accused civil service and political bias at some point or other um, and it's been a really really extraordinary time so I remember when I first started at the FDA and um, uh, I can't remember uh, who it was but they, they uh, a minister had said something about the civil service and uh, Dave Penman our general secretary responded and said about the importance of an impartial civil service and he said Amy don't worry it's not going to be like this all the time (laughs) Uh, you know this this doesn't happen very often we don't get all this media attention and I think that's probably the last time that we didn't get a lot of media attention because it's been non-stop since then uh, constantly defending the the civil service and really at times it has felt that it's the FDA and the IFG who've been a kind of lone voice um, defending the civil service and I think that there is something to be said there for um, the people whose job it is, um, so the, the Prime Minister and also the Cabinet Secretary, to also step up and defend those principles. Um, because you know the, the, the founding uh, principle of the civil service is, you know, impartial, permanent civil service, serves the government of the day. And I think that some of these things here in the report um, really will help the civil service to do that.
0: Thanks very much, Amy. Jess, um, so we make the case in our report that um, uh, very much as Amy says, uh, if, if a government comes in wanting to do constitutional reform or if indeed, as Henry says, the need for constitutional reform comes upon them while governing, um, we make the case for how that can be done in a sort of more thoughtful, considered way, just as John was saying, with cross-party support where possible, although that's obviously not always possible uh-huh. if it's something that a government really wants to do. Would you like to tell us more?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the things that um, kind of became apparent throughout the course of our review was just the fact that in a lot of cases, constitutional reform in the UK is not treated uh, very different to other policy issues. Um, because we have this system of parliamentary sovereignty where constitutional change can happen by a simple majority that means that the Constitution is kind of very responsive and uh, kind of uh, can adapt to different circumstances but it is internationally actually very unusual usually you know uh, most con- most countries across the world have a codified Constitution they have a specific process for changing that which usually requires some sort of input from the public some sort of um, cross-party consensus perhaps a supermajority, and and sorts of things. Now we decided that that was not the route that we wanted to go down, we're not advocating for a codified constitution, we um, came to the conclusion that we don't think there is kind of enough public or political support for that at the moment. But I still think it's very important to recognise the special character of certain constitutional change in that it's very fundamental to pretty much everything else the government does. You know it's, it's how the political system operates and therefore we argue that there needs to be a particular recognition of that Um, and there's several ways that we recommend that this could be done one of those is the idea that uh, Henry uh, is not a big fan of uh, around this uh, idea of a category of constitutional acts this was uh, a kind of Uh, a precedent set by the courts kind of recognising some pieces of legislation are more important than others and actually um, I know Henry uh, would uh, object (laughs) to that but actually one of the things that we thought is that actually it shouldn't just be for the courts to determine that and if that's going to be a concept that it's important that Parliament has a role in that as well and linking that to other parliamentary processes to ensure there is more robust and thorough scrutiny of those pieces of legislation so we don't get to a point where for example the fixed term Parliament's Act. a a piece of legislation is passed by one government and then repealed because what that creates is this sense of kind of constitutional instability and in the context of constitutional instability it makes lots of other policy making more difficult. Um, Another kind of key theme of of our report is around uh, kind of engaging the public in constitutional change as well because we think that in order for change to have legitimacy and therefore be kind of politically entrenched and not liable to kind of constitutional flip-flopping is the is the ter- term I've, I've coined to some extent. It needs to have an element of public legitimacy. Previously, the, the way that that's been primarily done is through referendums. And while I think there is still a place for referendums in the UK constitution, I think uh, we will have referendums in future. We've been trying to think about other ways to engage the public as well, including involving them in coming up for the proposals for constitutional change on matters like, for example, House of Lords reform uh, through kind of deliberative processes like citizens assemblies and and those sorts of things so what we've tried to do is to put put forward a kind of package of measures to ensure that where constitutional change does take place it's really well considered really well thought through there is attempts to get cross-party consensus there's attempts to involve the public and we think by doing that you'll end up with better constitutional change uh, that will ensure that the implications for other aspects of the constitution are fully thought through um, and also more long lasting and sustainable constitutional change um, in that if you can create policies with kind of broad public and, and political consensus, um, then the government will be able to kind of get on with the, with the policy of government rather than constantly having
0: these issues kind of contested. Okay, I want to dig into a few of the sort of more detailed themes around this uh, because we've got great expertise around the table and I don't want to let that go to waste. Uh, John, can I come uh, to you first? You were, as I said, in introducing you, the government's anti-corruption champion, but you resigned over Boris Johnson's breaches of ministerial code. Do you think our current system uh, of, of standards, which is obviously one element of our constitution and is codified in various ways, but not in others is sufficiently robust to uphold and maintain standards.
1: Um, so if you'd asked me that question in about May, um, I'd have said definitely not. And then I had a big, long shopping list of things that needed to be fixed. The government has now in, I think it was June, it might have been July this year, um, issued a series of updates on things like response to the Green Facile scandal um, and a series of recommendations from the Committee on Standards and Public Life. And actually they're not bad. I mean, there's been some criticism from different bits of the political spectrum um, asking for more here or more there. But actually, they they address quite a lot of the problem, I think, and they address it pretty well. Um, We'll obviously have to wait and see how it plays out in practice. But quite a lot of the things that people were worried about um, are in it, um, and and it looks like a good step forward. I would quibble with a few things. For example, um, if if you want to know if someone's lobbying uh, ministers If you come along and lobby a minister, then the ministerial meeting gets um, recorded and gets published in due course. But if you go and lobby a SPAD, which can sometimes be a great deal more effective than lobbying a minister, that's not on the list anywhere and uh, and you can um, fly completely under the radar, for example. So there's some some details still to go. But broadly speaking, I think that um, as a set of um, integrity reforms, yeah, really, really useful. I think that there are still some issues elsewhere um, I think that we have a problem in Parliament, and we, we, we've heard some of the some of the culture in Parliament, um, which probably needs to uh, continue to be dealt with, and is only part way through that process. I think it's still a long way further to go, so that worries me quite a lot. Um, and there's a couple of other bits and pieces too. So uh, I, I, I would say um, glass more than half full, um, but not perfect yet.
0: Great. I'm going to come to you, Henry, and then I'm going to come back to Amy to tell us more about the parliamentary situation. I guess again, thinking back maybe a year ago, Henry, um, Labour were making a lot about ethics and standards being um, uh, not sufficiently robustly upheld um, and came up, they've come up with proposals for sort of a, a new body to oversee uh, the ethics landscape sort of simplify because it is very much one of those areas of our constitution which has evolved over the years and has lots of different bits and pieces and sometimes uh, certainly elected um, uh, politicians find it quite hard they say to, to understand you know, how the rules all fit together and so on. So they Labour were making a lot of that. Do you think that is going to end up being a, a sort of electoral issue now that Boris Johnson is no longer prime minister? Um, or do you think that that is something which will be a, a, a sort of a lower key issue going into the next election?
2: Very few, th- well, very few things are ever actually electoral issues. It's one of the depressing things about being a political journalists: you will <laughs> cover an awful lot of things in a lot of detail, and basically the voters tune in for the six months before the election. And it, am I feeling richer? Is that crime down? Like, like the, you can count the, the number of voters who will actually determine their vote on the basis of whether or not there is a new procedure for ethics in Downing Street are probably in this room. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is not to say it's not important. Um, but it's just, if you're thinking about the electoral, the electoral consequences of it, I mean, I, we, it will probably happen. I, I take a slightly different view to John, that I think that the ethics thing is really important, but as you may know, I would abolish the ministerial code. Um, and, I, and I would abolish them, and, and that's nothing to do with the, the code, but I think the problem is that you, it's actually journalists who are the problem with the ministerial code. Because the, the ministerial code, is in, on, in, on paper, is perfectly fine. It's basically just a list of everything that you expect ministers to do, and its enforcement is entirely up to the prime minister. And, and, and he can make a discretionary decision. And that's perfectly in line with, with, with parliamentary con- cabinet government. But the problem with that is that you design it and then you go off up the mountain to get the next bit of constitutional wisdom. And journalists like me, you come back, we're dancing around it like it's the golden calf. right? Because what actually happens is suddenly, instead of talking about, and I've noticed this over, you know, we've had a few big and small cabinet scandals. And instead of talking about the substance of the issue, what we say is they've breached the ministerial code. And that's oh, okay. the that's the yeah. head well that's the headline of the story yeah. right and that's the angle that you take and that means that suddenly you've got a relatively trivial thing like that Suella Braverman driving course thing, and you've seriously got people going well she's breached the ministerial code does that mean she has to be... and it's like and that and I think that's deeply frustrating and I think that one of the things and one of the reasons I'm sort of sceptic of high level abstract constitutional reform is that you need to think about how things like that actually play out in the media and the electoral landscape so. Ethics is important, but I'm always wary of making it too procedural because you do end up effectively creating, if not de jure, then de facto uh, constraints on on the political power. So the the ethics uh, advisor is another good one, right? So the Prime Minister is, of course, has the right to ignore the advice of the ethics advisor, as they must in a political constitution where who serves in the cabinet is ultimately at their discretion. But with any system like that, you can only get the cover of pleading the ethics advisor's case, if you do what they say, at the moment, that's what any bureaucracy does, right? If you step outside the procedure, you're taking the personal risk. And so I think over time, again, you would end up with this character of the ethics advisor accruing power, unofficial, but real power over who serves in the cabinet. And I think that's a very difficult balance to strike. But again, the problem with Boris Johnson was not that there was not some procedure that would have made him a good person. <laughs> it's that the political
1: circumstances. Because he wasn't. No, precisely.
2: <laughs> the, the political of circumstances of twenty nine uh, uh, of that period elevated a manifestly unsuitable man to the premiership, and there is no. I don't think there is a democratic, certainly not within the British political constitution. I don't think there is a process or constitutional procedure that could have stopped Boris Johnson from happening. That was an indictment of the Conservative Party's political choices, but in a co- political constitution. MPs have to be able to make terrible decisions. <laughs> to all of our costs.
0: Um, I yes. do think to, the first point you were making about the ministerial code, the fact that the government's changed it so that um, there are a range of sanctions under the code has was an attempt to address that yeah. point, that it's not literally if you make any breach you must resign, that there are actually other things that could happen if it's a mess, less serious breach. We need
2: breach. to see if it improves coverage.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, anyway, can I come back to you um, and this question about what more there is to be done in Parliament?
3: And um, yeah, of course. I mean, we um, we made uh, great strides um, in Parliament. So um, in twenty twenty. Um, MPs uh, voted to have a fully independent uh, process to deal with bullying, harassment, and sexual harassment complaints, um, which was which was groundbreaking. And I remember um, having many conversations with Hannah um, sort of twenty eighteen um, onwards, and this this feeling of just complete impossibility because the MPs had to vote for this themselves. They had to vote to clip their own wings. Um, and lots of people believed it was impossible, but actually they did um, do it. And I think it was, um, you know, it was the, the words in Dame Laura Cox's um, inquiry into the behaviours in Parliament that really, I think, exemplified what was going on, that she said there was a culture of deference that allowed bullying to thrive, that it wasn't being dealt with. Um, so the, just the culture just fed on it itself and it became culturally acceptable um, to, to behave in ways that we wouldn't get away with in any other workplace. Um, and she said that, you know, this is bringing parliament into disrepute. You have to deal with this. And eventually they did and they brought this in. There's lots more um, that, that could be done. I think one of the thi- one of the issues that we've got at the moment is because we have got a functioning bullying policy now in parliament and the, the, the policies are being, you know, the, the findings of reports are being published. That's kind of lifting um, a, a lid and exposing some of those culture, which we didn't have before. So it looks, so your perceptions is, oh, it's, things are getting worse, but actually they're not, we're just knowing about them. It's always been the same behaviours, but we just didn't, they weren't being published before. And we've kind of got to go through that process. Um, and because we had, um, we also won the ability to be able to take past complaints. So this is how we had the complaints against you, know, people like John Burko and Keith Baz and all of those that were coming up that were, that were quite historical complaints. This, is, this has created like a, a, a mass of complaints that have come in but I think that Parliament is actually a really, really good, um, uh, really good system. It's a really good win, and it shows that um, you know where we needed to take the politics out of the determinations on complaints and have that independence. Where we don't have it is in ministerial um, bullying complaints, and that again, as as we've sort of discussed, all roads lead back to the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister is the arbiter of the, the ministerial codes; so he gets to decide. Um, whether or not a minister would go if they um, had bullied so we've now got this really odd situation where if a um, minister who obviously is also w- would be an MP if they're down in the house of commons and they bully a member of staff they can put in a, a complaint that would be inv- investigated independently and there may be a determination that they're not they can no longer be an MP, but if they walk down the road in Whitehall in their department and they bully a civil servant in exactly the same manner, there's this really murky process on how you put in a complaint and it kind of, do you go to your permanent secretary, do you go to the Propriety and Ethics team, and it's very, very uh, strange about how that all works. Um, And as we've seen, that causes massive um, political uh, turmoil for the prime minister and um, so we you know we would say exactly the same things in parliament it's better for everybody that there's an independent process to deal with these complaints because that takes it out the prime minister's hand The prime minister can say no look it's not me making these decisions it's it's my independent advisor and we would really want to see the um, committee on standards in public life their recommendations implemented but this this does have really important um, uh, effects on how policy is determined. So we did a report at the beginning of the year around um, uh, bullying in Whitehall departments. And one in six senior civil servants said that they had witnessed unacceptable behaviours by a minister. So it's not just a small problem. I mean, it's not the you know the vast majority of ministers get on very well with civil servants, but there is there is a, you know a growing problem. Um, And nearly half of the civil servants who had witnessed unacceptable behaviours, just witnessed, not experienced themselves, um, said that they then felt reluctant to speak truth to power. Now it's a fundamental part of their job to be able to speak truth to power and that kind of has a a dampening effect, a a silencing effect on the advice that they're giving. If they think, oh gosh, this is going to, they're going to turn on me or this is going to be unacceptable behaviours, it dampens the messages that they feel confident to bring and that's fundamentally
0: um, a problem. John? Henry's made this argument that, that's um, you know, the classic, classic argument that ultimately it has to be for the Prime Minister to determine who it is in the Cabinet, which is the, the, the fundamental principle, um, and theref- therefore for them to, to determine the um, application of the ministerial case. Do you think there's any distinction between um, the sorts of behaviours that Amy's talking about in terms of bullying? Um, and harassment by ministers. Um, So we might take, for example, the Dominic Raab case that we've seen recently and uh, other ways, other aspects of the ministerial code. So, for example, Priti Patel going to Israel, having uh, meetings that she didn't declare to the the Prime Minister. Do you think there should be any distinction um, between how those things are are looked at and
1: investigated? Um, Short answer is yes. Um, And I, I think you were right to point out just now that one of the recent reforms, but much needed, is to say that there are different sanctions available for breaching the ministerial code, because Henry's quite right that it used to be a completely binary thing. And if, if I tell you that until, the, until about last year, technically, if you failed to send your apologies for being unable to attend the cabinet meeting, you were in breach of the ministerial code. <laughs> Clearly, not a sackable offence, but you know, that, that would have counted. Um, you know, Henry would have been sort of you know, out there sort of yelling and screaming. And so, so clearly. Desperately on every media panel, I'm going, no, 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 no.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so, so clearly, it makes an awful lot of sense to have a range of different uh, sanctions. And I think that uh, not only is that reform important, but now the tone and tenor of the public debate around this needs to change from what Henry was rightly describing it has been into something a bit, a lot more nuanced and saying you know, um, yes, that yes, they were in technical breach, but it's not a very serious one through to no, that really matters. And it's yeah. been very, very, very serious indeed. Some of the examples that that Amy was just talking about. So that that is absolutely essential. The, the bit where I would just enter a caveat is I think that the moment that the Prime Minister is always in a difficult position, doesn't matter which party they're in, um, when an ethics issue comes up. Um, because there is automatically and inevitably some sort of conflict of interest that they will end up being put in that situation. And so that's why the ethics advisor's position exists, so that they can say, I'm going to hand it to this person who I have appointed, who I have personal trust in, to be sensible, um, and they will recommend to me whether or not it's right. And that does two really important things. Firstly, it (coughs) takes the thing out of the front pages of the newspapers that day and immediately while the ethics advisor goes away and wraps a wet towel around their head and thinks it through. Um, so that stops the, 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 the crescendo of pressure um, and also it means that you have, then you buy yourself the time to do a proper dispassionate independent look at what's really happened and what the, what the facts are. Um, and both those things I think are important for, for both the person who's accused and the accuser and the prime minister as well. Um, ultimately then, yes, it does have to come back to the Prime Minister, but in practice most of the time, um, the Prime is always going to say yes, um, unless there's some sort of enormous um, piece of uh, you know, national security or something like that which is involved. Because to say no, I disagree, I'm not going to follow what the ethics advisor's proposals are, recommendations are, you're going to have to spend an awful lot of political blood and treasure in saying no. and You have to explain why. And Really, the only things that you're going to want to do that on are something like national security or, or one of those. So I think it's a really valuable thing. Um, I think it's very, very sensible to have that role in place. And it does a really important job. And I think it, it shows us. But ultimately, it still means that the prime minister has that, has that power. Um, because so you are done.
2: disagreeing with Henry? Graham, yeah, I am. I, I'm agreeing with him. I'm, <coughs> on lots I'm on not saying to completely abolish it.
1: the ethics of yeah. Process, yeah. by but the way, I I didn't say that, but, uh, I, I, but
2: it's precisely the process yeah. that John is describing, wherein it's, it, no, no, it's not necessarily, it's just something to be wary of. Yeah. Yeah. Because if it's the case that the ethics advisor, the Prime Minister, effectively de facto does not ever breach, that is a lot of power occurring to that position. Now, as long as it's, I think, having it appointed by the Prime Minister is therefore crucial. But you do get people saying, you know, well, shouldn't it be independent of the Prime Minister? And I think that's when. So it's it's more. It's not. We need to completely abolish it and just have the prime minister ruling as king emperor. Um, but it's you need to be constantly aware of how these processes, which can be fine on paper, can. can, can,
1: right. and can I can I just pick up on that because I, it's really important because some of the, the, the Labour Party's proposals for an independent um, sort of you know, big constitutional change on, on on this sort of stuff, the moment you do, the moment you create some sort of constitutional statutory ethics body, their decisions then become justiciable. And that means that, broadly speaking, every time um, any future Prime Minister appoints someone that you and I don't like, it'll get taken to court. Um, I, I, just th- I just think that is, that's a really dumb way to run a parliamentary mm-hmm. democracy. It's probably an, an impractical, impossible way to run a parliamentary democracy. So, um, there, you know, there's real peril, constitutional peril um, of going too far in this area. Um and I think that therefore the ethics advisor is about as far as you can go while still maintaining parliamentary democracy. But it does in practice mean that the Prime Minister has some really useful space that they are creating for themselves. Um, and you actually stand a chance of coming to a a reasoned answer rather than something which is mob rule, um with with, with everybody, you know, rushing to judgment in thirty-six hours when most of the co- most of the facts are no. <laughs> I think
0: it remains to be seen what Labour actually does with those proposals. Um when it comes to a manifesto, my, my,
1: my, my projection, my, my prediction is that they will make a big fuss about it and then not do it. But we'll see. We'll
0: see. Jess, um, I wanted to move on to devolution, um, which has been a key source of tension, um, both during the Brexit period, um, but also over, over COVID with different approaches taken in different parts of the UK. What recommendations have we made in the review to try to improve the way the system works?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, devolution has been one of the the key themes um, of our review. And I think perhaps the place in the Constitution where some of those underlying problems are revealing themselves um, most. Um, but actually, I think I just wanted to reflect a bit on the discussion that um, the panel have been having so far around this sort of question of sort of uh, kind of, statutory legal constraints versus political constraints versus just hoping that everyone kind of acts responsibly because that's been a really key theme of of our review of the constitution and I think what we've tried to do is sort of land somewhere in in the middle on this. We're not recommending creating loads of new sort of uh, legally binding processes or putting statutory constraints on ministers or different parts of the system but we do think there is a need to enhance these kind of political checks in the constitution. And we, you might not hear it so much in, in rooms like this, but I think there is a bit of a, people are beginning to question the UK's political constitution and whether that is how it should be or whether we should move to a slightly more legalistic system. And I think the area where that's most apparent is in devolution. Um, where certainly the devolved governments are arguing that under the system of parliamentary sovereignty they have no rights, they have no protections while the UK government can take them to court, they can't really take the UK government to court or at least successfully because uh, parliamentary sovereignty means that uh, the UK parliament could simply just pass different legislation to kind of change the rules of the game. So this is actually a, a debate that's happening perhaps less so in the Conservative Party but more out, out, out there um, and if there is a, a different government then perhaps something that might become more of a live issue and that's part of the reason why we think it's really important to reinforce those political constraints to put pressure on uh, people in government and parliamentarians to act responsibly like for example through the advisor on ministerial interests um, in in a way that is is not binding on them but still kind of uh, reinforces the, the political enforcement of the Constitution which is the way our kind of system operates and kind of in that vein we've looked at some specific proposals around devolution to kind of reinforce and protect aspects of the devolution settlement without going as far as kind of putting it on a statutory basis or uh, having some sort of like federalism which is what a lot of people are calling on from we suspect that um, some of the work that the Welsh Government might uh, look into government's doing might look into this as well um, so as I said earlier one of these ideas is around creating a category of constitutional acts so just to say that the devolution statutes you know uh, the the Northern Ireland Act, the, the Scotland Act, the Government of Wales Act are particularly important and if you want to change them, if you want to amend them then that should require some additional scrutiny um, similarly another one of our proposals is for a parliamentary committee on the constitution um, which wouldn't have kind of the power to make binding judgments, but would be able to express an authoritative view on the Constitution that is independent of other institutions so independent of the uk government or the devolved government and so where you have issues like we did for example over the uk internal market act where the devolved governments were claiming that this was a kind of a fundamental threat to the existence of devolution and the uk government was saying there's no problem at all uh, there might be somebody who's able to kind of uh based on sort of precedent and understanding kind of give uh a slightly uh, a view on, on on that on the implications of the uk internal market for the operation of devolution that didn't have a stake in the game necessarily although um as as we go into in the report we still think that this should be kind of political in nature it should be in parliament itself and feed into existing parliamentary processes. So we're not suggesting creating some sort of extra parliamentary uh, quasi-judicial sort of arbiter. Um, It's kind of reinforcing those political checks on the constitution. so, I mean, uh, there's, like I say, there's lots more detail in the report that I'm not going to go into. I hope uh, you'll all have opportunities to read it. But, yeah, fundamentally, what we think we're trying to do here is reinforce the political constitution. And I think after the period of the last seven or eight years, there is a need to do that. Otherwise, I think people are going to start to look for more radical constitu- uh, constitutional solutions that might be kind of more uncomfortable uh, for people who are uh, in favour of this the political
0: constitution. So Henry, you've written a lot about devolution. Um, Can I ask you to address this point about how how we go about changing the devolution settlement if we choose to do it? Because I I think what we are trying to argue in our review is that it is legitimate to say that the the devolution statutes are an example of a law that parliament has passed where we need to be particularly careful about going about changing that if we were to change it um because we need to make sure that there's the public buy-in and where possible political you know cross-party political buy-in because it is something in which people across the uk are, are deeply invested in different ways so we need to go about the process carefully
2: i mean that's putting it as softly as possible and who could possibly disagree with the need to do everything carefully um, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 as I said, I don't agree with the idea of constitutional statutes, but I also don't believe in, in entrenching and reinforcing devolution, um, because of my, my instincts are entirely the opposite, actually. Um, if we're doing constitution, I think devolution is kind of the er ur- example of the downside, perhaps, of this sort of weird hybrid of doing everything piecemeal, but also trying to do big stuff, right? Which is, we did the we did devolution in 1998, and the 1997 Labour Manifesto said that we will legislate for devolved assemblies for Scotland was Northern Ireland, uh, the united kingdom will be strengthened and the threat of separatism removed um, that obviously didn't happen uh but then since then we've just had endless reactive concessions of of, of further powers and so would
0: it have been better if they had to go through more of a process of consultation and discussion with the public no, and cross-party, uh,
2: no. maybe they
0: wouldn't have ended up where, the, where we are now.
2: No, I, I genuinely don't think so. I it would have just, it would have just been a, it would have been a series of talking shops and, mo- and most, of, most of the actual professional bodies and lobbyists would have been in favor of it, right? I think that's, the, there's no consensus for constitutional continuity. Um, there was no organization representing the 49.7% of people in Wales who almost voted the assembly down, right? The, the, one of the things that's outside, outside <coughs> the scope of this is that I'm deeply, deeply skeptical of the extent to which we engage stakeholders. Um, because there was basically a permanently established stakeholder part of your group, and you end they endlessly feed back into policy, and I think that often that ends up being they don't actually represent national opinion necessarily very much. But with the, with devolution, I think that what, what you really need to see. I, I was a huge supporter of the UK General Market Act. And I think it was an absolutely fantastic watershed moment in our in in a maturing of Westminster's approach to devolution, which is that it no longer took this view that. The devolved prerogatives are sort of untouchable. I think that it's it's really quite strange in some ways to hear people saying, oh we need to we need to entrench devolution and defend evolution because westminster's has barely done anything to the devolved assembly that hands them vast amounts of money in a way that has no accountability to Parliament. Right? you know, the, the, the Barnett formula. There's very little accountability to how that money is spent. If you look at a federal country, look at uh, Canada, for example, where the, the Canadian Conservatives at the moment are saying that uh, their housing campaign is based on the idea that actually they're going to make federal funding conditional on various places hitting housing targets you, know, you didn't get that with the we with the, with the with the have made proposals about how to improve scrutiny. speaking yeah, yeah, precisely. yeah. And, uh, I'm a huge fan of large bits of what the institutional <laughs> government does um, so you need stuff like that and I think that you also for example I think that Parliament could usefully legislate that uh, to mandate the collection of uniform public service Performance data across the United Kingdom that's because one of the things that's happened over the last few years is we'll Wales, Scotland, <laughs> yeah, excellent great minds. But, you know, Wales and Scotland have opted out of you know, school and, and NHS performance metrics and you you're going, okay, we're gonna try one of the points of devolution, one of the arguments in favour of devolution was supposed to be a policy lab idea, right? Different countries try different things and we see works well, works we can't do that because the evidence base doesn't exist. So no, I I I, I I'm fundamentally a, a devo skeptic. Um, as anyone who's read my writing on the subject will know. I don't think that you can go north to 60 like that overnight. And you should of course take enormous care when doing something like this in case you uh, inflame nationalist passions and all the rest of it. But I think that there are lots of small measures that Westminster could do to play the role in the country that central government should play and indeed that it plays in federal in federal countries. like right? Something like the, the very contract fiasco where you end up with parts of the United Kingdom potentially becoming food deserts because of a catastrophic failure of a, of a contract. Or, that's something I think Westminster should look at. I think that Westminster should maybe say, especially if, if if you're handing over Barney consequentials, that there are minimum standards for NHS and school performance, and that there is the ability to, for Westminster to step in if those are consistently not met. Now, that would not constitute defending the devolution settlement that new Labour created in 1998, but I think that's a really bad settlement. So, and that's why I think it's a political issue. And I'm really wary of entrenchment, because the ultimate dilemma of entrenchment is if you need to entrench something, it doesn't. You don't have the moral. You don't, I don't think you have the moral authority to entrench it. And if there is a sufficiently broad consensus around something to justify entrenching it, you don't need to. John,
0: what's your view on
2: these issues?
1: I'm sorry, I would agree with Henry about entrenchment. Uh, the way that things last in the UK under our constitution is that successive generations continue to think it's important. Um, and it's really. I don't think it would work if we were told we couldn't change it because our grandparents thought it was important and we don't. But nonetheless, you're still not allowed to change anything. I think that would be you know, a, a, a really big political issue really fast and it will create a constitutional problem as a result. So I, I think Henry is absolutely right about that. Um, I, this is one of the bits where I, w- I would respectfully and uh, politely disagree with the with some of the recommendations in the report on, on devolution. Because um, I agree with the formulation of the problem. Um, I think that we have, you know, we acted in 1998 um, to make these devolution settlements and some of the problems are now very apparent. Um, I think that the part of the solution, not all of it, um, is probably political rather than constitutional. And it is simply that the moment we hand over money without actually um, very much responsibility for raising that money with the people who are going to spend it. And the fundamental political principle, I think, is that you have to kill what you eat. You have to raise the taxes that you're going to spend. And if instead someone gives you the money because they raise the taxes, and then you get to spend it. What happens is you end up with a, a political dynamic that says, I always want more money from you because I don't have to go through the pain of raising it in the first place. And then I'm going to criticise you because I'm going to spend it in ways that you may not like or which I'm deliberately going to make difficult for you because I'm a separatist or a nationalist, whatever it might be, Um, and I'm going to criticise you with your own money. Um, And that's what we're seeing. Um, And I think that a fundamental piece of rewiring of this um, would be that you say, most of the money, you'd still need to have a little bit of the Robin Hood principle of, of you know, redistribution to, the, to, to different parts of the country. But most of the money that you spend in Manchester, Scotland, um, Wales, wherever it might be, needs to be raised by the politicians who are spending that cash. Um, and if you do that, then actually an awful lot of the constitutional, not, not all, but an awful lot of the constitutional stresses and strains um, either go away or become manageable because at that point, the political accountability to the voters becomes a great deal clearer and voters start to to care. And the answer isn't always, I'm going to vote for my nice local devolved um, uh, 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 councillor, uh, um, MSP, um, whatever it might be, local mayor. Um, and they're going to stick it to, to Westminster. It becomes, I'm not going to vote for them because they screwed up their ferry contract or whatever it might be. And it genuinely becomes accountable once more. That's what we take for granted in Westminster politics with all its you know, um, rough and tumble and, and, uh, and, and you know, missing the mark on occasions. But that is a fundamental piece and it doesn't apply um, to far greater, to too much of an extent, in our devolved politics. I think that is a big part of the answer. I'd do that first, then I'd wait five years, <laughs> maybe ten, um, and see what happens to the next set or the next two sets of um, elections And then I'd see whether or not you need to change the plumbing of the of the rules after that.
2: Uh, I'm just going to come back quickly because that's a very common conservative view that I disagree with, and I want to explain why. Um, I think that I think that there is a real danger after after 25 years of devolve and forget. One of the things I always try to say to, to to pro union campaigners is, you know, if you if you take the view that you can't do anything on devolved areas and you've devolved most things that voters care about, you know, you're knocking someone's door in a referendum, and they're like, oh well you know, what's the British government going to do about my schools? Well, oh, that's devolved. What's it going to do about the NHS? Well, oh, that's devolved. You, know, you end up with a really thin case for the UK. And at the moment, the big case is money. The big case is fiscal transfers. The fiscal transfers are an undeniable, even, even the you know, Welsh Labour and so on, who, who are in other ways, in many ways, a nationalist party. And I think there's a real danger of spending 25 years more or less reducing the case of the United Kingdom to a big pot of money and then taking the money away um, without doing anything else. Because if you take away that fiscal transfer and you remove British fiscal transfers, you're going to, one, especially in Wales and places like that, you're going to cause an awful lot of hardship, but you are effectively kicking out one of the main, one one of the main cases for the union in Wales, but also one of the main embodiments of the British political nation. I think fiscal transfers are the basis of the way in which we say there is a British political nation rather than this kind of threadbare confederation of vaguely associated, you know, countries on an island. So that would be all I'd say.
3: And yeah, I mean, the, the, very, very interesting debate. And I think that when we're talking about uh, spending money and issues of the constitution, I think we do need to mention the situation uh, that we've got currently in Northern Ireland, um, where we have no functioning executive, and so we have got the civil service that have been placed in absolutely um, the, the most difficult um, position, where they are having to prepare. Um, all of the evidence and advice to make decisions, and there is no one there to make the decisions. And they are, and they have got an issue with massive financial um, uh, constraints placed on them. A very difficult budget um, situation where it's not about spending money; it's about they haven't got any money to spend. And it's the civil service that have been placed in this in this absolutely terrible uh, position. Now, we as a union um, wrote to uh, Chris Heaton-Harris, the Northern Ireland Secretary, to stay. You know, politically this is a very difficult decision but there are things that you can do around ministerial directions there is no functioning executive it can't be left to the civil service to be the ones that have to make these difficult and um, these difficult decisions and i think that this is one of the, the real issues where whitehall and the government do need to, to take um to take a lead and to make a decision um around that i sense that john wants to come in just, I, as a, as a,
1: <laughs> a, sorry you finish your no no, no 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 i, I just i mean you are right about the very difficult position which the civil service in Northern Ireland is in. Um, they're basically trying to follow policy decisions made by the last lot of devolved yeah. ministers, which is now many years ago, and those are you know, old and, uh, and and looking quite threadbare. And without the
3: money to make those yeah. decisions.
1: So, so, so I, I agree with you with the problem. The difficulty is, at the moment you start talking about ministerial directions, what you're really saying is direct rule from Westminster. Um, and, and we all know, um, without me rehearsing it here, just how Politically yeah, um, explosive, yes. Both literally and politically, I'm afraid that could become. Mm-hmm. Um, but and it so should that, happen,
2: and it's a dereliction of duty that the NIO is allowing Northern Ireland yeah, to go without well, a government.
1: Um, I, I I completely agree with you that it is a very big problem at the moment. I'm just worried that we're we jumping from frying pan into fire um, if we go if we choose yeah. that as the alternative. The, okay. the
3: other the other alternative is of course, sorry, Hannah. Mm-hmm. The other alternative is of course is that they try to get the
0: executive back
5: in, and that
0: would be the preferable. Yeah, right preferable. Yeah. We're going to get to the audience for questions now. Uh, a colleague of mine has a raving mic. We'll take them in groups of three, so we can hopefully get through a couple before we finish. There's a gentleman on the aisle here, Lauren. Uh, thank you very much,
5: Keith, be- Keith Best, former MP and also Chair of Conservative Action for Electoral Reform. Our bicameral legislature is under threat from the hard left. Uh, It's been part of conservative policy for years and years to reform the House of Lords, but we've never got round to doing anything about it. And although I understand the argument, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, um, I mean, clearly there is a momentum there saying increasingly the House of Lords really is not fit for purpose, even though it does a very good job. The danger is that if we don't do anything about it, the initiative could be taken from us and somebody else will do something about it which we won't like. How how can we, taking account of the fact that there are no votes in constitutional change, how can we do anything about that? I mean, should we, taking John's point, actually have an incremental change policy over a period of years, which is actually pointing to small changes, but ending up with something that looks much, much more democratically representative. Thank you. Two more questions,
0: gentlemen
6: of the front. My name is Jonathan. I'm just a member from Kettering, so my views represent myself. during Mr Penrose's remarks, um, he, he said that the uh, constitution is uh, something that we should believe in and it's not something that we do just because our grandparents um, do. And I would like the panel to try and convince me that something is important using using John's words. And, and as someone from the private sector, one thing I've always found very baffling is the idea of impartiality within the civil service. I personally don't understand it. As somebody who's never worked in the civil service and then someone from the private sector, the idea that a minister has Limited choice over the people who is running in the team to me is completely alien, baffling, and makes very little sense in the modern world. To me, as, as many of us who probably are from the private sector, I've been in situations where I've thought the head of finance is incompetent and we need to replace them. The idea that I wouldn't be able to do that in a civil service I find very strange and baffling. And to me, it feels like an antiquated thing that we do just because our grandparents have done it. To, to, to quote John, I'd, I'd love for the panel to try and convince me otherwise. Great,
0: and then there was a gentleman.
6: Hi, yeah. Uh, James Porter Jones from the NGO Spotlights on Corruption. Uh, just picking up on the really interesting discussions around public standards reform. I just wanted to get panelists' views on the uh, announced plans recently by the government to uh, issue fines if the business appointment rules are broken. Um, I think fines. Uh, they're not, it's not been um, done yet, but the plans are to issue fines of nineteen thousand um, pounds. Do panelists think? This is enough to deal with sort of conflicts of interest in the rolling door, um, or could those fines just become the cost of doing business? Thanks.
0: Great. So we have House of Lords reform, civil service impartiality, and the changes to the ACABA rules for business fines. I suggest you don't all feel you have to answer them all. Um, Amy, I think you might want to start with civil service impartiality, perhaps. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, definitely.
3: Um, uh, so, in terms of uh, uh, your point, um, and lots of people do really, really struggle with this idea that you can have a, a permanent and impartial civil service and they can serve the government of the day. The government uh, then changes and they go on to serve the next government of the day without fear or favour, but they do, and they do it every day And that the same principles a civil service code applies to a person working in a job centre, to a person working in private office. Um, uh, Talking with the minister every day, and it's the same rules that apply. And fundamentally, um, with that, a civil servant is employed for what they do, so it's all based on merit, not who they know or what they believe. Um, so the, the the point that you said um, about wanting to get rid of somebody who's incompetent—if you if you—if you don't do the job properly. Then you wouldn't be able to be employed as a civil servant. You would, There are measures to uh, to, to um, dismiss people on capability grounds if you're not um, performing. What um, you wouldn't do, even in the private sector, is um, dismiss someone for what they believe. And that's the that's the difference. Um, there is actually what you're saying. Um, you know, people can uh, the civil service. Um, Operate on a principle of what you know. You're there. You're there because of what you can do, um, and the expertise that you bring. Um, you know, p- permanent impartial civil service provides stability, and um, it provides institutional memory. In particular, parts of um, government that is incredibly important. I'm thinking of the Foreign Office and the Home Office. Incredibly complicated areas of government where you do need that long-standing memory. Um, you don't want a position where a, a new government's coming in and they are having to then go and employ a whole new set of uh, everybody who's working on the borders, your diplomats and, and everybody within the civil service um, that, that just wouldn't work. Um, ministers are able to bring with them their spads and they give them their political advice um, and they, you know they change with the ministers. but the permanent civil service provides the stability and that institutional memory and it's that you know you are there because you can do the job.
0: Just to follow up on that from an IFG point of view, I mean, I think um, I totally like un- understand where you're coming from. Your question, I think, it's, in- it's interesting when we talk to in individual ministers, um, they tend to generally be very positive about the individual civil servants they've worked with. It 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 tends to be more when they are sort of talking about civil service in the generality um, that 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 they are more willing to uh, express uh, concerns. But I think that we at the IFG think you know there is a lot to improve about the civil service you know there's a lot uh, which could more which could be done uh, to ensure that there's interchange between civil service and the private sector and other sectors um, so that up-to-date skills are being learned and brought and experience brought into the civil service and out and it's absolutely right that there must be procedures so that you know if somebody's not performing in their role on capability grounds, they they should be moved on, and I think the evidence is it doesn't happen effectively enough in the civil service. So there's definitely a lot more to be done. I don't think, from our point of view, we would argue that doesn't undermine the fundamental case for the value of an impartial civil service. I'm going to go back to John. Oh, Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was
3: just going to say. I mean, uh, I completely agree with you about bringing in more expertise into the into the private sector, and I think that's really really important. But one, you know, one of the issues that we um, are seeing uh, right now is that in the in over a decade, particularly in the senior civil service, um, the value of pay has dropped by about twenty percent, and departments have very little levers that they can pull around um around things like pay so trying to attract people in to go and work in in the civil service is actually really really difficult when you've got those that kind of um uh, you know really demoralized civil service and there's low pay um you know kind of people think well what's what would be the point
1: a brief brief point on that and i want to address the point about acaba which uh, which james is raising as well i mean i i think i think there's a difference between impartiality and competence um and i think that your concern uh, Jonathan yeah, was, um, was rightly about competence and I think that some of the reforms which Hannah was describing um, would fix some of those issues at least um, and are probably very necessary. Um, I'd also add that um, in my experience, people who, um, politicians who criticise the, you know, the civil service um, either have never been ministers or aren't, weren't terribly good when they were ministers. Um, you know, good ministers will provide strong leadership and if they haven't got a team that's capable of keeping up with them then they'll you know they'll they'll make they they will lead it strongly and 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 the civil service will respond so i i think it is um i think it is a lazy thing for politicians to do and actually what what you need is is really good strong ministers who will lead and lead effectively and that is actually part of the um the other part of that equation as well on this point about akaba for for those who those who who aren't Um, like me, a sad integrity nerd who who cares about these things. (laughs) Um, ACABA is the Advisory Committee on Business Arrangements, I think. Appointments, Appointments, thank you. Um, um, And that basically says, uh, if you are a minister who's leaving a job in the MOD, you can't go and work for a defence contractor immediately, or if you can, you've got to be vetted and approved to make sure that there isn't a conflict of interest for you and for the MOD and for the taxpayer um, in that move. it also, incidentally, applies to officials as well, slightly different arrangements, but you know, with parallel ones. And it matters for both people um, coming into the civil service from a previous um, outside job as well as people leaving the civil service and going on to an outside job, um, um, but also, therefore, to ministers leaving too. Um, and the problem has been for years that, particularly, the ministerial um, moves have been largely unenforceable. Um, ACOBA could say, you shouldn't do this. And if the minister says, thanks very much for your very, very useful um, recommendation, I'm going to file it in the round ca- filing cabinet on the floor over there, and I'm going to go ahead and do it. There wasn't much ACOBA could do. They could, they could shame them. But if if someone really didn't care about being shamed because they like the money, um, nothing happened. So I, I, it is absolutely crucial and um, very, very welcome. As one of the reforms I was mentioning earlier on this summer, that Aqaba now has grown some teeth and claws or more teeth and claws um, and very, very um, necessary too. And there's a bunch of other legal things that that are going to be done um, to to introduce deeds for ministers to sign to make sure they have to abide by the decision. So um, a good example of a small, incremental, but I think really fundamental um, fixing of a particular problem. um, And it looks like it should work. um, And I look forward to it taking effect.
2: Uh grateful to John for giving me an excuse to ignore the applicable question. I don't know enough about it. I'm very sorry. So we'll do with the, the other two. For civil service, you need bigger political teams in the, uh, on the government side. I think there is a real problem, especially, I did a paper on why we should break up the Home Office. And I think one of the problems is that you end up with a very small political team trying to group a very big department and they can't provide effective political management. But ultimately, it would be completely unworkable to completely change the senior levels of every department when you came in, because even if you could find the personnel, you would just then end up with a break between them and the permanent staff further down. And I think that you need that point of connection with the civil service hierarchy. So I think John's right, strong political leadership. You can can direct and instruct civil servants, right? If they come to you and say, oh, Minister, you can't do this because it's illegal. You go, okay, draft me the statutory instrument to make it legal then. And you can do that and ministers don't do that because most problems in our constitution are political will problems rather than process problems. On the House of Lords, (laughs) the problem with House of Lords reform is that the closer, the more familiar you are with the House of Lords, the more valuable you recognize that it is. And we haven't really touched on Parliament, but ever since Robin Cook's abysmal uh, changes to how the House of Commons operates by slashing their sitting hours and everything else, the House of Lords now picks up an awful lot of just the hard, boring, detailed work of legislation. I do think actually that it needs to change. And I think that you can actually go fairly big on it, but you can't be democratic. Because if you make it democratic, one, it will just end up full of people who couldn't become MPs which would be very depressing. And two, you would end up with a clash of mandates, which our current constitution doesn't have. So I think that what you should do is you should keep it appointed, you should try and keep expertise, but you should cap the size. I think what you could do is that the proposal I came up with is that you could cap the size of the number of peers who could actually sit in a given parliament. You would simply assign a fixed value, you divide it into three, you'd have say 200 seats that were assigned to the government, 200 seats that were assigned to the opposition parties, and one or 200 seats assigned to the crossbenchers. And then after every election, basically, say the Conservatives won an election and you had a 200 seats, and they would then fill those seats in the way actually the, the hereditaries do now, which is that the Conservative peerage would elect from amongst their own members to fill those seats, because that means that you could have as many Lords as you liked, and you could keep giving people the titles and everything, and I think that's nice, but you wouldn't be <laughs> handing out lifelong seats in the legislature, and it would mean that the, the peers were selecting their own active members from amongst themselves, and I think they could probably be trusted to do that, but crucially, You wouldn't have anything vaguely resembling the Senate. You wouldn't have anyone thinking that they had a mandate to defy the House of Commons. And I think that that would square the circle of, we don't want it endlessly bloating. It is absurd that you can give, it's not quite giving us, uh, putting a horse a seat in the Senate, but it is absurd that you can give sort of 27 year old uh, researchers a seat for life in the House of Lords in your resignation honours list. But it would keep that focus on detailed, expert legislative work and avoid clashing mandates.
0: Thank you, Henry, for confirming the My view that there are at least as many different ways of reforming the House of Lords (laughs) as there are members of the House of Lords. Um, Jess, I'm going to give you the final word. I'm conscious that we're running over and people will have other places to get to. Yeah, great. I'll be I'll be very brief. Um, just to pick up a couple of points on the House of Lords specifically,
4: because as part of our review, we also published a series of guest papers, including one by Meg Russell, where she looked at some <coughs> of the sort of incremental changes that could be made, including uh, giving the House of Lords Appointments Commission a kind of greater role in approving um, new appointments. Although I think there are also challenges there as to what a criteria of what a peer should be, um, and you know, I think that's something that we would need to have a cross party conversation about and um, there's also kind of obvious changes that could be made in terms of hereditary peers that was only meant to be a, a temporary measure of retaining some of them that was part of the first stage of Lord's Reform that you could make further progress on um, but I think just to kind of finish I wanted to push back slightly on this uh, idea that kind of standards or the constitution is not an electoral issue at all um which I, I completely agree people do not look at manifestos and go well some people do including perhaps myself but and go oh what Maybe are they saying on summer. yeah <laughs> house of lords reform or parliament or those sorts of questions but i think after sort of the last period of um kind of five To seven years, some of the scandals around um, uh, kind of MPs' behaviour, party gates, several other questions. I think there is this sense of declining trust in politicians and in the political system, um, and I think not addressing that is an electoral risk because I think people think that politicians think they're above. Um, above the rules, that they don't have to comply with these things. And I think that extends to several issues, including House of Lords appointments. So while I don't think it's you know going to be entirely decisive in terms of the answers that parties might give to that, I think there is a sense that something needs to be done um and on that basis i'll recommend a report that has recently been released, uh, which you should all find a leaflet for including a qr code to download it uh so i will end on that note very
0: good yes good uh, plugging sure. of, of the report yeah um i think we'll have to draw to a close there thank you so much everyone for coming can i ask you to join me in thanking our excellent panel
5: I'd also I like to, to just thank
0: approach. the FDA once more for sponsoring the event and encourage you all to join us for our next uh, event, which will be in here uh, with the excellent title AI Governing the Ungovernable. Um, and that will be with the Minister Paul Scully and Damian Collins and an excellent panel. So I encourage you to join us at 10.45 for that if AI is of
5: interest to you. Mm-hmm. And do pick up one of these leaflets which tells you everything else that the IFG is doing here. Thank you.